0: Hello, um, welcome back. This is part two of the Witness interview with Moira Finnecane. I'm Ben Keane, the host. We enter now with Moira and I talking about how much we adore working together, but I think it leads to a really interesting conversation, so please enjoy. You always seem, because I've worked with you a few times now, Moira, that's no secret.
1: And I've worked with you a few times, Ben, and may I say you are a bit of a genius, and it's
0: just, (gasps) it's been a bit of a joy. Oh, it's total joy working with you too. <laughs> the joy in working with you, I think, before I go on to the next idea, I think on the rapture I kind of coined this phrase for you in my head, which was the, the patron saint of magpies. Oh, how what does that even mean? Tell me. One, magpies are fiercely intelligent. Yes. But two, they are very attracted to shiny things. And they will yes. curate and collect all these things. And as you described, you, you're so much about what makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. Yes, yes. And that's from the way you work very much. It's about kind of that instinctual idea. Does that work? Does that not work? And so that leads, obviously, when we're working sometimes, half an hour before the show begins, you go, we need to do this right now and it has to happen before this show and we make it work somehow.
1: I think you have yep the magpie the patrons say to magpies, "I love that because magpies were actually my favorite bird when I was a teenager oh. and and retain a very special place in my heart and i my mother gave me a picture of a magpie which I carry with me everywhere
0: oh really wow okay. and
1: I think I think that one of the reasons I love working with you is and and in fact collect artists along the way I believe that art can change culture and change lives. And I believe that when art is forced to stay in the lanes, whatever those lanes are, be it contemporary dance or circus or burlesque or variety, it it denies not only itself but its audience's intelligence. Mm. People don't, you know, everybody has more than peas on their plate. And as an artist, I have frequently been, not so much these days, people tend to accept me more for the, you know, wild polymath that I am. But in for for years, for for decades, people and in fact still as I go into new areas, people say, Oh, you can't do that. Oh, you can't do that. You can't do that. In fact, that's the only that is the only common element throughout my artistic career is being told, I can't do what I'm doing. Wow. And perhaps it is true that one day If I'm told in a project, oh, yes, that's absolutely the right thing to do, I'll know that I'm on the wrong track Mm, because mm. um, my favourite visual artist amongst many is Edvard Munch. And when you look Mm. at an extraordinary Edvard Munch painting, there's something that I call the red blob factor. There's a work of his called The Three Stages of Women. And it became very famous and very controversial because there's this giant red blob in it, mm, and I, it's yeah. in uh, Kota Bergen in Norway. And I went to Kota Bergen and I sat in front of it for two days and I looked at the red blob. And of course, it's an older painting now, so the red blob is kind of cracked, but it's yeah. very thick. Mm. And at the time, people, what is this red blob? Is it is it menstrual blood? Is it pain? Is it what is it? It's it's so ugly. And I thought as I looked at it, it is ugly, and it makes this painting which you might want to hang on the wall, less comfortable to hang on the wall because there's this Mm. big fat red blob in it. There's this beautiful, the virgin, and then there's a beautiful woman at the height of her sexual powers and it just looking absolutely stunning. There's a widow, the same age, grieving and very intense, and then there's a red blob, and then in the forest there's a man Mm. looking lost. What is his relationship with those women? What is the relationship with the blob? it's uncomfortable. Mm. And for me, that discomfort, that openness, that I don't know what's happening here is absolutely essential in great art. So I'm always looking for the red blob, including half an hour before showtime. <laughs>
0: <Yes>. <laughs> absolutely. But that strikes me of like that half an hour of panic Yeah, is kind of that energy as well. I mean, it's kind of goes hand in hand, the energy of the work and the kind of constant uh, uh, adjustment and manipulation of what we're doing and the openness to that changing right away. I mean, mm. and it cause, can cause interesting times when you decide, no, this speech has to be completely different and I'm yes. not telling the sound people, but hey, it was a beautiful <laughs> moment to everyone else who wasn't us um, and it worked really beautifully. I'm sure. I couldn't tell. I was too panicked, actually. Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah, I I know. Sometimes I am very panicked as well.
0: You never come off as panicked on stage. That's the important thing, right? And it strikes me that working with you, uh, that you have to kind of, at the same time, inhabit two completely polar opposite mindsets. A resolve that you're right in the totally absolute sense, and a constant doubting and questioning of whether what you're doing is going to be a total and complete flop. Is that just me, my own projection about the work, or do you find yourself inhabiting those kind of spaces yourself as well?
1: Yes. That's pretty much it in a nutshell. Mm. I, I feel like that all the time. I, I I feel like I am always teetering on the edge mm. of failure. Mm. And I'm just trying to find some wood to touch, listener. Um, <laughs> I just found some. Because as as a person... I feel an incredible sense of urgency. I I did a forum at the Sydney Festival where I took my last teeter on the edge of failure work, which was a huge success, but, you know, it was very mm. ambitious. There were acrobats from the Tibetan plateau and jazz musicians from all over the globe and a beautiful singer and people, everybody in the show doing stuff they'd never done before, and not just a little bit of it, not just a, let's walk out on the edge of that cliff for, say, one song or five Mm. minutes in one song. The whole show was like that, and it was beautiful. Anyway, in the midst of all of that, I was doing a forum on circus, which I am not a circus practitioner, but I do use a lot of circus in my work, and people said to me, you know, what, Moira, do you think is the major challenge for circus in the next decade? And I said, I think that the major challenge for circus is the major challenge that faces all art in the next decade. We are teetering on the edge of an abyss. Mm, 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 It can't be business as usual. We, We can do that and we will just go over the abyss more quickly. Therefore, as artists as people, as humans, we need to quickety sticks get our heads around stuff that we haven't necessarily got our heads around. Mm-hmm. We can't keep wandering around and talking about diversity and equality and the environment and perhaps a little bit of climate change <sighs> in, our, in our art. Mm-hmm. it It is behoven upon me and I believe behoven upon us all because we can all make things better mm. and we can all make things worse. Mm. That's that's what we do every day, every second, is we either make it better or we make it worse. Because standing still isn't standing still. No. It's either making it better or making it worse. Yeah. Watch someone stepping in front of the traffic. Do you stop them? Make it better. Do you not stop them? You make it mm. worse. So. I have a real sense of urgency in the work that I do. My work, I have to try to make it better. Mm. I have to try to – I was doing a show recently where at the very last minute of the very last show, someone said it was a variety show um, in a major capital city and. Someone, an artist came up to me and said, hey, you know this? And we'd invited local artists in and n- none of the local artists that were had been recommended to me, one had, but they were off doing something else, was a folk of colour. Mm, and mm, so mm. somebody came up to me and said, hey, there's this woman of colour. She'd really love to work with you. And I thought, oh, I, I haven't heard about her. That wasn't a name that crossed my path when I was reaching out in a city that I don't live in for other artists. So I (laughs) immediately went, okay, great, let's do it. (laughs) And, of course, it created... The, the, the theatre I was working with was very accommodating, but it created this frisson of disturbance. You know, it was three seconds before Showtime, and oh, what are we going to do? And I just went, yeah, great. Okay, just, just tell them, yeah, absolutely. Tell them to come on in. And then, so, and in that moment, in that moment, I went, ooh, and it's a very small thing to do. You know, mm. I'm not risking anything mm. except mm. my reputation, my continuing reputation of mm. being, <laughs> being challenging to work with. Um, but i just thought it's it's in my face mm. to give this person an opportunity and that structural oppression is the fact that i hadn't been i hadn't stumbled across yeah. them yeah, in the networks absolutely. that i'd been introduced yep. to yep. so i thought if this woman's being recommended to me by someone i respect then i don't have time to see their act yeah. i'm just going to say yes. Put, yes, yes and the worst thing is that maybe their act is mediocre. Yeah. As totally. it turned out, they were the biggest stick of dynamite. <laughs> the biggest stick of dynamite and this person, Jacinta, who is amazing, Jacinta, mm. look her up. You know, she helped us fold up the materials afterwards. Beautiful. She told me she'd always wanted to work with me. She told me that when she was facing challenges in her art, she would think of me and say, well, don't worry. Moira's done it Mm. and I had no idea. And I said, oh, I didn't even know you knew who I was. She said, oh, Moira, everybody knows who you are. (laughs) And, you know, in those moments, big and small, we can make things better, we can make things worse. So, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes I'm going to tip over the edge and it's all going to get really messy and ugly and there's going to be tears before tea time. But that hasn't actually generally happened.
0: Mm.
1: People get tired in a Finucane and Smith show Everybody works really, really, really hard. I don't know any other way to mm. create great art. But great art has got to be transformative. Mm. It's got to be transcendent. It's got to be generous. It's got to be like going to a restaurant where everybody is trying so hard to make you go, I oh, have never tasted anything <laughs> like that in my life before.
0: And as I said, like that is the energy of the work as much as anything, is that your allowance for that kind of risk... Actually, and it wouldn't be what it is if you didn't have that that kind of risk and that kind of mindset where you can just kind of shift those things. I think it's just worth kind of mentioning that idea about um, oppression being social, not just like within a structure of a theatre company or something like that. Especially in the arts, mm. it's social as well. It's like, well, I don't talk to that person because they're not in my social social, you know, which is like in big quotation marks. And I it can think, lead to that kind of and it's very,
1: it's a very normal thing to mm. reach out to who we know.
0: Yes, absolutely it is.
1: It's really, really normal. There's no crime in reaching out to no. who we know. But as we grow up and we have opportunities and power, then we need to reach out to who we don't know. Mm. And in doing so, we become richer, we become luckier. Mm. You know, it's not about diversity. It's about representation. Mm. You know, I'm mm. Irish Catholic Mm. I need to reach out beyond my Irish Catholic friends, you yeah. know. Yeah. And, and in doing so, my work becomes more exciting, more explosive, mm. more, oh, I never saw that before, yeah. you know. And I often yeah. say to myself, my ambition, and it's a lifetime of learning for me. You know, I am not standing on a pedestal here going, Finn Cannon smith you know, the last word in diverse representation. You know, for us, it's it's a lifetime of learning. It's a lifetime of awkwardness. It's mm. trying. It's failing. It's getting things wrong. It's getting things right. But for us, the idea of being lucky is what drives our desire to put different faces different skin, hair, art forms, spiritual beliefs and voices on stage mm. because we're lucky. Mm. If if that happens, then we're lucky because we get more and the audience get more. So, who doesn't want to get lucky?
0: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> let's just let's, let's yeah. see if this leads anywhere interesting. Okay. okay. Over the last few years, you've been working a lot with Chinese performers? Mm. But also in Chinese spaces. actually going to do work in China, this incredibly Australian act in China, which kinda think is very interesting. What has been kind of drawing you there?
1: It's it's an un, a lot of people think it's a quite uncanny match, you know, Moira Finique and mm. the Queen mm. of Wild in China. But there's something about I don't know why, but I've always been really amazed and excited and drawn to various aspects of Chinese culture. Mm. China China is huge, so Mm. I can't say Chinese culture because there's so many different cultures and spiritualities and all that kind of stuff. But for the last 20, 25 years, I've been really excited by Chinese opera. Mm. Um, I'm... I'm fascinated by Kuan Yin, the white goddess of mercy, who, as an Irish Catholic, is sort of, (laughs) to me, like the Virgin, but different. Mm. And, you know, I love looking at those different manifestations of the the goddess, you know, the Black Madonna, the Virgin Mm. de Guadalupe… Mother Mary, Kuan Yin, you know. So I've gone down the Kuan Yin path many a time. I'm also really interested by the fact that Kuan Yin was male, and then in the 11th century, and th- this is contested. A lot of people I meet say, no, 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 Kuan Yin or Guanyin is is male, but in actual fact, many people now think of her. She's a bodhisattva. Mm. So, and I love that idea. Bodhisattvas, once they are enlightened, they don't got they don't ascend. They just stay on earth. Mm. And she she is, Kuan Yin, she hears the cries of the world. She's the white goddess of mercy and bodhisattvas stay on earth. I don't pretend to know this in in any kind of detail, but the Mm. thing that attracts me to them is that they stay on earth to help people. Mm. Anyway, so there's many aspects. The opera, I always, you know, Jackie and I, always used to go and find a Chinatown in any country we went to and we'd go there and we'd sit under the red lanterns and have a meal and it was just a complete love affair based on I'm not sure my mm. my grandfather went to China in the 70s when very few westerners went and he came back with some of um Chairman Mao's wake up music and chopsticks, and this incredible fascination with the culture he'd discovered there. And mm. used to take me to restaurants and order black bean fish, which was, you know, a very challenging taste <laughs> for me at that time. But, you know, that might have triggered or sparked my interest. There's something about Chinese artists take their art very seriously. Yeah. I don't have any time whatsoever for artistic complacency. I don't understand it Mm. and I don't like it when I come across it. I've never met a complacent Chinese artist. And if you think about how many people are in China, Mm. if you're an actor performing in, say, the National Theatre of China, just have a little think about how good you'd need to be. Mm. So my introduction to arts in, in mainland China was to be invited by Meng Jinghui to be the leading lady and The Good Person of Sichuan. And Brecht, of course, I am completely mm-hmm. in love mm-hmm. with Brecht. I remember saying to a journalist, I would get out of the shower for Brecht any day <laughs> and they, they were completely bemused by that comment. And I guess the reason I said it was because when Meng Jinghui invited me to to play this lead character, 10th anniversary of The Burlesque Gale was booked in. And it was a complete clash. And I said no. I said no three times. Um, And very biblical. And then I just thought, why am I saying no? Mm. When do I get the chance to be – Meng Jinghui is the leading avant-garde theatre director alongside director Tian of China, Mm. of that massive, massive – Theatre mm-hmm. world, mm-hmm. so I turned around and said yes, and cancelled the season, cancelled the tenth anniversary of the Burlesque, <laughs> which was not a popular move, and I had to apologise profusely to many, 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 understandably aggrieved persons, mm-hmm. and off I mm-hmm. went to Beijing oh to to be in a play at the National Theatre <laughs> of China, and I was so nervous, I was catatonic with nerves, oh and gosh. I had to play um, you know, Let It Go from Frozen. Yeah. So I played that in my headphones over and over again as well as Iggy Pop's Passenger <laughs> and Wolf at the Door by Radiohead and I just kept playing the three of them. Um, <laughs> let it go. <laughs> 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 and uh, somehow between Frozen, Iggy Pop and uh, Wolf at the Door, Radiohead, I managed to get myself in the right headspace and I did, <laughs> I did an amazing job and I was walking in the Forbidden City and walking and walking and walking, so amazed, so confused, mm. and thinking, I will return. I will return. Oh. And I got lost in the Hutongs in Beijing and was actually rescued by a woman dressed completely in PVC <laughs> <laughs> with, with rhinestone heels and a little bow at the back of her boots. She was just extraordinary. Anyway, that's a, that's park that that's just an aside. But I I came across this little old, ancient opera house in the Hutons, which is quite famous, and I thought, I will come back here. And last, no, the year before last, a a Beijing theatre company, having seen my first Chinese director performance of the Australian Gothic exploring family violence, the flood, Mm -hmm. don't try that at home, um, and it was just so challenging and so extraordinary, and, of course, Ben, you and Darren designed the music for that. And that was something that they just loved, this soundscape that just trickled throughout the whole work, which mm. was something that Chinese audiences weren't used to. They were used no, to accent no, yeah. rather than a symphonic, yes. a symphonic gothic
0: score. Yeah, kind of through score. They, yeah. they had it kind of at the end and beginning yeah. of scenes, which is very traditional, but this kind of much more, well, it's a very Melbourne thing, kind of having a whole thing through score, but it's a very new kind of idea for them, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And. Mm, mm. Anyway, I was catatonic with nerves. Interestingly enough, I didn't listen to Let It Go. I probably should have that time, but um, and there it was going up in Beijing, and the consulate were coming, and the you know embassy and everybody. And I was catatonic with nerves, and there was a big Beijing producer coming, and he he took me out for lunch the next day, and my process with that work. One of my major concerns with that work was in a cross-cultural collaboration, Mm. you need to be respectful of difference. That's incredibly important. But I I said to my translator, I said, everybody in my entire artistic life has told me that it won't work. How will I know in this instance if they tell me it won't work, whether that's just the normal it won't work or whether it really (laughs) won't work? And she just looked at me and said, I cannot answer that question. And I thought... Nobody can damn. Mm. so I just had to trust my instincts and my instincts were right, but mm. it was mm. a it was a knife edge ride because also there's that extreme melodrama in Chinese performance, oh, yeah absolutely. extreme melodrama and I let my actresses go mm. d- as melodramatic mm. as they wanted. And then I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to have to start reining this in. Mm. And I I wasn't sure whether to rein it in. And Mm. I thought melodrama with viscera is fine. Mm. My work is quite melodramatic. But Mm. so long as it's visceral, so long as Mm. it's real, it still takes the audience somewhere extraordinary. So... Three days before the work premiered, I started to get them to pull the melodrama inside them, mm. so the feeling mm. was still there, but it went in. It was a big success, but it, it was it was there were many concerns mm-hmm. as people watched this extreme melodrama <laughs> unfolding all over the rehearsal floor. There were many raised eyebrows and 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 uh, you know subtle and not so subtle questions about my directing <laughs> technique. Anyway. Um, so this big producer took me out the next day and I didn't know whether he'd liked it or he'd hated it. And then we sat down to a meal and and he said, he made a, a long speech in Mandarin, which I didn't understand. And then his translator said to me, he thinks you're a genius. <laughs> and I just, I, I sort of collapsed into the peaking dark. I was so, I was ill with relief. I just don't want to go home now. Anyway. To finish that story, he he drove me. I, I had been questioned, you know, that these people had never worked with a woman director before, and nobody's ever worked with a director like me. My style is unique no matter what part of the world mm, I'm mm, in. So mm. there was there was there were there were many concerns. Anyway. And people were very polite and supportive, but I could tell that nobody knew whether it would work, and I was amongst them. Mm. Anyway, it worked. And he drove me to a theatre that he thought I could create a work in. And it was that Chinese opera theatre that I'd seen three years before when I stood outside it thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do next in China, but I know I'm going to return. Mm. And he drove me to it. And it was locked as it had been three years before. But because he's a big cheese, a very big producer in China, he just knocked on the door and they were all rehearsing and they all opened it up for him. Wow. And I sat in a Peking opera rehearsal. Incredible. So it was that 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 has actually been my experience in China a combination mm. of epic that Chinese artists believe in the epic.
0: Mm, definitely. Yeah. They
1: believe yeah. in the epic. And they don't treat art as a as a thing you do. They don't treat acting as a thing you do. They treat it vocationally, mm, seriously, mm. epically. Uh, before the season they just did at the Sydney Festival, I would always gather all my artists together and I would say, "Be the dragon, catch the pearl," <laughs> and because I, I gave them this lecture about their ancestors. Mm. Yeah, ancestors are very important in China. And in fact, they're very Mm. important for Indigenous artists and they're actually very important for us. Mm. I've thought more about ancestors since I've worked in China and I've thought about all of our many ancestors, the ones that have weaknesses and the ones that don't, which is basically all of them, you know, all the strengths Mm. and weaknesses. When you pass, your work is never finished. Mm. But in the next generation, there's an opportunity for those strengths to go forward. So even the incredible weaknesses of our ancestors, the the, the bigotry and the discrimination and the inability to leap forward, mm. which we share as well, the, the next generation can take the good bits of that and the strengths and the power and take it forward. So anyway, I was giving them a lecture about how their ancestors relied on them (laughs) (laughs) to take their power forward. I said, your ancestors could never imagine a moment in which you take this work, this work that's thousands of years old, into a festival on the other side of the world. You are the very best of your ancestors. Be a dragon, catch the pearl. They all looked at me and went, okay, we'll do it. (laughs) So it's a a meeting of passion. China and Latin America are two places where strangely I feel right at home in my mm. my sense of passion, dedication, commitment. And as one Chinese artist said to me as I was exhorting them to work longer and harder, they said, you are more Chinese than Chinese. You have our work ethic. And I went, yeah, I know. It's scary, <laughs> isn't it?
0: Miss <laughs> Finnecane, thank you so much for joining us. It is Witness. such a pleasure. It's been fascinating. Talking with you, I mean... I, was, I remember a little while back I was uh, at your cocktails at your house. Yes. With all your artists and I said, oh, look, I've got to go. We've got to rush off. And, of course, you launched this incredible story about being in a museum <laughs> and how there was a model of the Madonna but you had to touch it. There was oh, no yes, way you couldn't. Oh, yes, And, you know, we had to leave like right then but 20 yeah. minutes later we were still there listening to this incredible story about how you got the curator to open the box for you. I
1: did, I did. And we, we – That was amazing. That was Edvard Munch's Madonna, the lithograph for his extraordinary, famous Madonna. And he always kept his lithographic stones, which was really interesting. And I find that inspiring because Mm. he just kept returning to his themes. And in a contemporary world where we're often encouraged to move on to the new, Mm, mm. he revisited the same themes throughout his artistic life and he kept his lithographic stones. And the curator said to me, would you like me to open the cabinet? I said, I would like you to open the cabinet. And then we both watched my hand reach forward. Obviously, I didn't touch the face of the lithographic stone because that would have been a bad thing to do and complete sacrilege. <laughs> but I gently touched the side and then she looked at me and she said, that is enough. <laughs> and so my hand gently came back out to its side. So uh, as they say in the uh, in, uh, in Cuba, nola tocas, which means do not touch. <laughs> mm.
0: <laughs> of course, in classic Moira finnecane fashion, the final word in our interview was not, in fact, the final word. And despite the fact she is midway to Antarctica, she felt the urgent need to record just a couple more thoughts on collaborating in China. So I'll let her take it away.
1: Hi, Ben. Greetings from Chile. I'm at Punta Arenas, which is the end, the bottom end of the world. And I've been thinking about your question on China and why China. China there's something about Punta Arenas that made me wanna add a little bit more to our interview. And I guess the thing for me is that I wanna take the stories that I have and what I have to contribute to people and places that don't have those stories or don't have that approach. I don't want to, they have different approaches and different stories which I can benefit and learn from. But, you know, I always used to have this joke that I didn't want to do my work for a coterie of friends and ex-lovers. I didn't want to preach to the choir. I wanted to take my work not to a mainstream audience but to as broader audience as possible. And that's something that I wanted to do right back in my nightclub performance days. It was something that really drove me forward. And when the opportunity to create work in China and to create work with Chinese artists came... And, and to be in Meng Jinghui's good person of Sichuan, that's why I jumped at those opportunities, because I wanted to work with those people and find different ways of coming together and telling stories that was really important. And I guess the other thing about China, which is, has changed me, is that in China, the only kind of work I do are cultural exchanges, collaborative exchanges, where I'm with artists working in ways that I've never worked before to tell stories that they might have never told before. The Flood is an Australian Gothic about family violence. It's the story of a mother and her two daughters. And it's, it's funny, it's hard hitting, it's incredibly sad. And the Chinese audiences that have seen it have been so moved, so powerfully moved by it. And it's humour too. It's humour releases them, provokes them. There's so many conversations, so many urgent conversations that happen after the show. And that to me, China is the same for me as, as taking my work to remote Australia. And, and, and finally signing off from Chile just before I head off to Antarctica, um, as I've been talking to Latin American producers and festivals about coming back here because we were the first Australian company to be in the Festival Internacional de Buenos Aires, Havana International Theatre Festival. Many new grounds were broken by Finne, and Smith. But when they've been talking about me coming back, what they want is me to collaborate with local artists. They went, yes, we love the Glory Box, but what we want is for you to talk with us and make art with us. So that's why China, making art with. And you know, when I was directing the Flood, which is the first, you know, the first Chinese language production I've ever directed of an Australian Gothic and what is relevant and what is the poetics of language and, how do you take an Australian gothic, what is the core of it, and take it into this kind of surreal fairy tale that maintains its otherness, which is the power of the fairy tale, to tell a story that is intimate to our daily lives, but feels completely disconnected and symbolic. And it was the first time that they had the first time these artists had had a woman director there are so many firsts in my work in China the Qinghai acrobatic troupe that I have just finished working with up on the Tibetan plateau it's the first time they've collaborated with a foreigner you never mind a woman director (laughs) never mind the wonders of a woman director so it was the very first time they collaborated with a foreigner and what you're dealing with when you make art and you are a very first And you need trust, you need exchange, you need to leap across language barriers to make something really powerful and human together. There's so much about that process, which is so much about what I want to do with my art. I want to get in there with people, with respect, with curiosity, with intelligence and, and an urgency to tell really important human stories and collaborate Collaborate it like I stole it. And it's it's really exciting. And it's a really vertical learning curve. Um, yeah. So I'm signing off from the hotel corridor at 6 a.m. in Punta Arenas. And I'm just about to jump on a boat to Antarctica. So collaborating like you stole it or driving it like you stole it or collaborating like you really mean it, it's... Um, China's given me an awful lot and I hope that I, in return, am offering that offering this strangeness, wonder and somebody wanted to set up a school of self-expression. You know, we could learn so much more. We need to know how to express. You should do that and that made me laugh. So watch this space. You could enrol in that school. It's, it will be up on the Tibetan plateau. Okay, signing off from Punta Arenas.
0: Right, so I'd better get this podcast out before she sends me another few notes from Antarctica. Um, Thank you so much for listening to this two-part interview. I hope you found it as fascinating to listen to as I found it. Please support Witness Performance if you can, if you have those spare buckaroos. uh, We really do rely on your support. This has been the Witness interview with Moria Finnecane. Thank you so much. Goodbye.